Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing tonight? I hope you said, well, at least it's not as hot as it could be. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your California Haunts Radio, my your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you think you might have a paranormal problem, we can get to you. We may not be able to do it right away, but uh, we'll definitely get somebody in touch with you. And you know why? That's because, you know, a lot of people think of California, you, you all think like Hawaii, uh, beaches and sand and fun, fun in the sun, surfing. Well, it's like that. Our West Coast is like that. I admit it. I used to go out there myself, hang out in Santa Cruz every summer. I was a frequent flyer in Santa Cruz. But there's also other areas, like where I live, not quite the Central Valley, I'm more in NorCal, that's all I can tell you. Um, I'm like in a very, very populated area, but... Outside of where I live, you got Central Cal, where there's a lot of farm country. Uh, you go up north of where I live, and there's more farm country. Then you get to the mountain country. You got the Sierra Nevadas, which is a ways away from me. And you got high desert. You got low desert. You got all kinds of stuff. So that's why, you know, even though we have 45 people, um, you know, spread across the state, it still may take us time to get to you. But don't despair because we will get to you. And that's because I do have mediums on staff who can call you and talk to you about what may or may not be going on in your home or business. And in more cases than not, most cases than not, excuse me, I just said dinner. In more cases than not, they can calm the, the, the stuff that's going on down until we can get out there. So that's, you know, that's how we operate. If you're looking for us, you can find us on Facebook under either my, my own personal name or you can find us under California Haunts. California Haunts Radio. You can find me at Instagram under Ghosty Gal, all lowercase. You can find us at Twitter under California Haunts. You can find us at TikTok under California Haunts. You can find us at uh, Twitch under Cal Haunts. So there's all kinds of ways to find us if, if you think you have a paranormal need. We've been doing this for 19 years, so uh, we have a lot of experience under our belt. And a lot of our team members have been with me all those years. So there, like I said, there's a lot of experience under our belt. A uh, quick ad- couple of announcements is Saturday... Uh, August 19th, I'm going to start a club, and it's a meditation club. And what that meditation club does is that I'm going to be med- meditating, offering guided meditations three to five, three to four times a week. And it's all for one fee. It's a $25 fee for 30 days. Um, there's, there's 10 spots open. And I'm going to cover everything from health meditations to financial stuff, you know, self-help stuff, everything like that. All right? But we're going to be doing that, and uh, if that seems like something you're interested in, you know, we'll figure out a set time to do these med- meditations, whether maybe it's after the show at 7.45 p.m., you know, in the Pacific in the evenings, or maybe before the show at 5 p.m. Pacific in the, in the evenings, so we can cover everybody on the East Coast. But this is something I thought that would be kind of cool, and, you know, just like, you know, maybe I can expand upon those, and we get to the point where we're doing a meditation every day, you know. But uh, for now, I just want to focus on maybe three, maybe four nights a week to do, med- to do meditations. And the neat thing about this is that you, you know, if, if you miss a meditation, I'm going to have them pre-recorded 
I'll, as I'm doing them live, I'll be recording them so you can go back for that week's meditation and do it yourself because, of course, I'm, I'm going to do that. They're going to be guided. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, be sure to visit the California Haunts uh, Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup at meetup.com and uh, check that out. It's under events. Also, uh, the following Sunday, which is the 20th, I'm going to be teaching the second level of psychic development. And that's for people that, uh, you know, took my first, took the first course or people that already have psychic abilities and they want to hone in on what exactly it is that they do, whether it's clairvoyance or, or, or other types. And that's what we focus on over there because we look, you know, I look, it's a two-hour class, and I, and I look at all the different forms of ability, and then we work with some of them and see, you know, where you might be the strongest. So if that's something you're interested in, come on over to the California Hounds Meetup again and sign up, and that's going to be Sunday the 20th. Okay? Great. Our guest isn't in yet, so we'll give her a few more minutes. Um, if she has trouble, I'm going to go ahead and switch over to reading uh, the next book that we read on Sundays which will be Mary, uh, by Mary Muter, and uh, I can go and call that up over at uh, over the Amazon and get that going for everybody. Um, I just want to say something about Maui. Um, you know, I, I feel very close to the people of Hawaii. I, I have a lot of friends from Hawaii, uh, not necessarily Maui, but friends nonetheless. You know, I I, I, I respect their culture. I, I, I respect everything about them, and I feel heartbroken. I feel heartbroken when I see the pictures of, of Maui right now. Especially if, if that banyan tree that has been there forever is gone. Oh my gosh. You know, so I just want to send out my deepest, deepest condolences to all my all my Hawaiian friends out there. Because this is just to just seeing the pictures that are coming back in and the and the news reports, it's just it's just heart heartbreaking, heartbreaking, heartbreaking. You know, and they always say Pele, the goddess Pele. When she has when she has a volcano erupt or anything like that happens, it's done to to clean the earth and cleanse the earth. And maybe this is something that she felt had had to be done. Who knows? But no, you know, nonetheless, it is just absolutely heartbreaking for everybody there. And I'm so so sorry. I'm so so sorry. Yeah. If the guest doesn't come on, we're gonna go ahead and read the book of buried. We're gonna start the book of buried letters by by Mary Muter. And I already got permission over the weekend to read this. Mary Muter's been a good friend of mine for years on the show, and uh, anyway, so sorry for that. Um, okay, so the book's up. So tonight, instead of the Tuskegee uh, Scrambler, I'm going to be reading from the Mary Muter's The Book of Buried Letters, uh, because I guess there was another miscommunication with Linda Lou Long, and uh, we'll just continue and I'll read. First chapter of, uh, let me drink some water here, and uh, we'll get on with this. I apologize. In fact, Linda and I had a conversation about two hours ago, about uh, confirming the time for the show. She may have got the times confused. You know, converting times all the time really bites. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to read from the Book of Berry Letters. And if Linda comes on, I will stop. But to that point, let's have a show. Let's put on a good show. And uh, from our good friend Mary Muter, Chapter 1, Memory. There's nothing quite like a treasure hunt, especially when it opens a story. There was once a four-year-old girl who emptied a large glass jar of buttons, examining them one by one. She placed them in piles, guessed which were the oldest, and pressed her fingers hard to imprint the holes upon her skin. Then she gathered them in scoops and filled her mother's sewing basket, after which the jar accompanied her to a, gro gro to a grove of pines where her hands dug just deep enough in the dirt to bury it. There, she said, placing a letter in the glass and tightening the lid. For most people, memories begin formalization around three to four years old. Scientists on the whole state any earlier claims Memories can't truly be substantiated. There are several reasons they give. 
Some say infants from birth to about four do not have the mental capacity for a kind of autobiographical, autobiographical recollection of memory or storage in the first person. Some specialists studying memory in the brain say other animals also show, show signs of infantile amnesia. Maybe the amnesia. Uh, maybe, sorry, I read it wrong. My bad. Maybe the, it's my night too. Maybe the amnesia is caused by the rapid development of brain cells, which essentially gets rid of unusable information while retaining essential information that helps with survival. According to a study, this is because new neurons disrupt older formatted brain circuits. To support this idea, scientists slowed neurogenus and baby mice and found that by doing this, they could force memories to last longer. Could it be possible? Then for, me for a memory to extend beyond the regular infantile amnesia? Is it possible for someone to have their brain function in a meditative state, which doesn't necessarily slow development in a way that is detrimental, but in a way that alters one's views of the world? Between bouts of screaming from colic, the little girl said she fell into the air, like being the, like being the bird's songs, and I moved as, as a dust flick floating in the sun's rays. Essentially, she meditated right from the start. She mimicked the hum of the car in deep breaths of home. It settled her. It vibrated in echoing harmony between her mind, ears, and heart. As she remembered, her mind had a way of altering traditionally formed memories. She moved into life, not about it. In order to not feel wind stinging her upon her skin, she says her spirit ran with it. It held under the wings of bees and the sway of the clover and felt, uh, and felt of the car upon the pavement. She held on to being wrapped in arms, the feel, the rubber nipples of a bottle, in her mouth, searching for, for position. She remembered the touch of hands and what it felt like to be carried or placed down, a sense of altitude shift. She listened to the beat of her heart and the expansions and contractions of her lungs. Language wasn't needed to recall or create the memories. It was only a factor in communicating with people. I had such a hard time getting the thoughts in my, my mind to translate properly. So I eventually practiced talking through pen and paper. Dear flower lady, weird colors zigzagging, my eyes closed. Okay, dear flower lady, weird colors zigzagging, my eyes closed. Her preschool teacher noted in a progress report from the early 70s, the little girl was a quiet child, but will talk of her life before this one. Something she'd remembered from before I showed up here. When asked about states of quiet, stillness, or nature play, the little girl described it as nothing. I'm not thinking of anything, and everything comes through me. It doesn't stay in my mind. It is like watching the birds or the flicker of flames, and everything flows. I flow with it. It doesn't attach to me. I am all of it, and all of nothing at the same time. Double check. Okay. I'm going to keep pop back occasionally. All right, back to the show. Meditation has impressive effects on the brain. It has been shown to help increase memory by strengthening brain stems and and the hippocampus. But, more importantly, it helps dissolve the division between oneself and the world. Where the passage of time is non-existent by the assumed standards and knowledge expands indefinite, indefinable web words, like watercolor kissed by rain. Meditation blends the workings of all sectors of the mind and soul at the same time. As the little girl grew, nature's canvas painted places of fascination and worship with secret joys and knowledge. Intuitively, she became somewhat in sync with her father's feelings about organized religion. While her mother sort of pictured the family together every Sunday morning, sitting prettily in church, her father resisted the efforts. 
It's just superstition, he'd argue, as scenes within his heart and soul clawed against the present life, crying for mercy. A jungle, a jungle closed, dark, unmoving. Men held their breath. Fear gripped the hairs of their necks. Pop. A shot rang out. Rang out. All hell broke loose. An enemy tank trampled through the thickest before them. Hey, get down. He grabbed the shirt of a young boy in his platoon who had begun reciting a desperate prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The missile launched. The boy evaporated. Only a scrap of fabric remained within her father's grasp. Her mother, though thoughtfully urged that no matter what he thought, it was important for the family to have a structure, have a structure and unity. But I don't have a belief, he said. Then you need to pretend you do, if only for the children. Her father's belief in religion changed dramatically while he was in Vietnam. As a young officer, he watched the men in his platoon stand beside him, one moment full of life and the next instant dead. While serving his tours, he kept a small black notebook with the names of the men in his platoon who were killed. When the tours ended, he traveled all over the country to meet each of their parents, sharing stories of their sons, hoping to heal their pain. It didn't matter to him which religion each soldier had professed to believe in, for God played no favors. Just thinking of what he went through and all those who were hurt and killed. By abhorrent comparison, her father was lucky, wounded, but for all appearances, not maimed or crippled. His injuries, though, ran deeper than scar tissue. He suffered a delayed reaction that after several years drove him inevitably to repeatedly relive the ordeal of the Ferris wheel in his mind. His dreams were filled with screams, with cries for help, and the horrors of fighting and killing with his own hands. His frustration with organized religion grew when he watched men praying desperately for their lives to be spared. He was not about to teach his children this false hope. He would let them find their own faith through their own needs and experiences. The little girl watched the changes in her father with a sort of curiosity and started to take notes of the tiniest subtle changes that would occur behind his eyes. The tiny pings of his uncertainty or fear translated into behaviors that created intense moments of unrest in his life and for those around him. He did all he could to hold on to any semblance of a normal life. He grabbed tightly to everything he thought he could control. And in doing so, he began to tide with obsessive behaviors, developing domineering and manipulative personalities, and caught himself before violence took over. It was on a night when one of her father's episodes was ruling the silence of the house that she tried not to fall off the roof of their home in Portland. Her teeth clenched at a hold of her nightgown's hem. Let's see, her teeth clenched, hang on, make sure I got it right. Her teeth clenched a hold of her nightgown's hem, which served as a makeshift sling to hold the glass jar protecting the blue envelope. This allowed her to use both hands to climb down the tree just outside her parents' bedroom window. As soon as her toes felt the cool ground, she took off through the night with the light of the harvest moon guiding her. The woods of Tryon Creek Park were just a mile down the lane. She never ventured out alone after dark before, especially into the woods where shadows prowled, helping the bandits and monsters mill about their lives. This letter was important, though, and needed to be mailed as soon as possible at the pine tree near the abandoned shack. The rain started up again, and the moss-covered stones next to the creek filled with water and offered no traction for human feet, or for hurried feet, I'm sorry. She flew onto the ground, catching herself before the creek did. But the falling and skidding, but the falling and skidding her knees wasn't the worst thing. It was losing the jar. She couldn't see anything in the dark by the rocks because the amplified forest sounds hitting her ears were blinding her eyes. Twigs snapped, leaves broke, 
and the owl said something to encourage a quickening stride all the way back to the house, up the tree, to leap across her room and place her warily back in the bed. Chapter 2. The Land of Ought Not. As we continue. Once upon a time, tucked deep in the woods, there was a shack. And in addition to the fairies, trolls, bandits, and shadows that were never far away, a woman lived there. Her long hair moved as if autumn and winter danced. The curves on her body were soft, and her heart was like a daffodil against the gray spring sky. On the far edge of this forest lived a little girl, and for her it was a full-time job living alone amongst the busy lives of her family. The worlds in her mind were there long before she was brought into this one full of schedules that, that build boxes around what ought to be done, and to keep out the ought-not. But no matter how much she tried, the ought-not was never far away. It climbed with the springtime ivy and sprouted through the tender flesh of autumn's ripe fruit. It scratched against the winter sky with the nails of barren trees and drenched her shoulders with the glass of summer sun. She often went to the land of Odd-Not as she stole away in closets under her bed or in the woods where she penned hundreds of poems, letters, and theories and mailed them, buried in glass jars everywhere she went for 13 years. Dear Flower Lady, it feels like life is kind of like a dream and everyone has their own parts to the dream. But then everyone... It's in their own dream, too, at the same time I'm in mine. And they are different dreams in the same place. I used to have a ghost in my room, and there was another ghost in the room over the kitchen. I know he's there. I can feel him. And there is like electric tickles on my neck and arms and in my heart when he's near. I told my mom about the ghost. Then she told me about the people that died at our house. So I think if they are still there, and they tell me things and their memories... Then you, then, they, then you are real, too. You are really real, too. Age six. By the time she was seven, world pulled her further into the land of ought not, where life felt harmonized and cycled. The outside world, the land of ought, stressed the importance of doing the things one is supposed to do, of competition both passive and aggressive, and of focusing on goals so they could grow up and work in the same manner. A you'll-be-happy-when kind of world. Life was full of tests and tasks complete, and it always seemed people went about life as if it were a problem to solve. For example, rather than letting the leaves decay beneath the tree to feed the soil, they were raked and moved. Who rakes the forest leaves, she would ask every year. No one was a simple reply. Then why do we, why do we have to rake our leaves? If the forest knows how to be a forest, don't our trees know how to be trees? She would ask as the combs continued their gatherings. The task complete. Dear Flower Lady, there is a reason life isn't just a line from start to finish. I figured it out because my day isn't a straight line. It, didn't, it doesn't end when I go to bed. I sometimes wait to the middle of the night to feel the page turn into the next day. But it doesn't flip or swish or anything. I just keep going, and then the birds start to sing, and the clouds are moving, and the sun comes up. I tried to feel if there was a giant's hand moving me like I was in his dollhouse game. But there were no fingers moving me. My favorite life this morning was seeing the dew on the grass and the spiderweb near the fence. Everyone's life around here seems the same, like school is a machine. I show up to learn the same as everyone else, but I cannot. Our questions have to be about what is being taught. That is the same at home. It's like an invisible fence on both sides of the road guiding us to, to the land of ought. Age 7. 
It's been suggested that folklore is based on some sort of truth, but that we live in a world where the mind is gradually closing, where tolerance is replaced with the ever-increasing belief in formalized doctrines and, and nihilism. One onset of these modern beliefs was marked by what is community, commonly known as the Dark Ages, where unlike other periods of history, important records do not survive, leaving in many ways this era lost to history. Some say that to protect the fragile ecosystem of hallowed races, a veil crept in over the lakes, blanketed the valleys, and then climbed the alpines to shield the, the mythical world from the brazen destruction of man. Sometimes, though, on rare occasions, the veil world, or the, the veil was thin enough for someone to reach through. And, on the night the little girl tripped by the riverbank, bringing her jar with the blue envelope to the pine tree, that's just what happened. A veiled creature named Untel, I hope I said it right, Untel, U-N-T-L, Untel, who looked like a cross between a wood elf and a troll, watched her dust her hands and knees while leaning against a fallen tree by the creek. Her eyes moved to the jar that, that had flown toward the little bubbling rapids, and he decided to breach the veil's barrier to snatch it. He took it into the boulder tunnels that had become a place to house forgotten relics and secrecies. The tunnel floors were made from an ancient volcanic vent and lined in smooth onyx. Granite walls were adroitly chiseled in a shelving by skilled fey artisans. And this is where Unl placed the jar. I tried to find that jar, but it must have fallen into the abyss, or it might have been stolen. I tried to get it back to the, to the pine, though, the little girl explained to her china doll, Kitty, as they had the next afternoon in the linen closet. The message was so important. She laid back into a pile of laundry for her focus burn overhead. Rain began to drip from the closet ceiling as lightning rumbled over the distant hills of the wild west where the drifters started coming. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. He was counting to make sure the storm had decided to change his course. Because I ain't changing mine, he said. The drifter had finally made his way to the northwestern territories from the deep south. Skirmishes and battles scarred the entire trail. Most recently, he was routed to fight in the second phase of the Yakima War, also known as the Spokane he was tired of war and questioned the taking of lands from the native people. Now that he was released from Colonel Wright's command, he had a chance for freedom. But with so much killing and screaming and bloodshed, he wondered how anyone could find peace. That's all he wanted. No more pleadings, clawing, clawing as mine. And he set he set off to find a quieter life, thinking it would be best to follow the Oregon Trail to the west side of Mount Hood. Because... It was always really broken in. Oh, it was always already broken in. Well, the trail might have been broken in, but it was not exactly like an old comfortable pair of boots, as he quickly found out. The Cascade Mountains stood as sentries, wielding ominous weather, and provided accommodations for fierce predators. The mountain lions watched the drifter curiously while he set traps to gather pelts for bartering. Grizzly bears and black bears raided his camp, eating the food he caught and had no problem protecting their territory. He quickly learned the smell of a bear when it lumbered his way by the sweet, pungent scent of death that coated its fur and rancid breath that dripped from the sag of its drooling lower lip. After months of hunting, the drifter had finally gathered enough pelts for a good meal and a seat on a westbound stage. Days passed in town trying to broker a deal at the trading post. Unfortunately, being new to collecting pelts, his offerings at the post were less than perfect and not quite enough for the trip westward. So, hoping to make up for his lack of experience at the, in the fur trade, he tried his luck at the blackjack table, 
winning some, losing more. Days went by, and it seemed the longer he sat in town, the louder the cries from the warnings by became. He began drinking with hopes of drowning the images, and his nights were becoming full of sweats. His room was above the saloon, where the whoops and hollers of the men and women below did nothing to help. Putting the bubble down, he chose to set out on foot, at least when he was moving the bayonet of war lancing his soul was yoked into some control. The plan was arduous, or the path was arduous and long. Stage after stage passed him by, with not even one stopping to offer the smallest drop of water. Well, that's going to change, he announced openly. Then, as sure as the day turns into night, the drifter became the bandit. It had been three days since he held up the afternoon stage. The horse he took from the robbery got loose the second night, and because of this, the bandit was left on foot. Knowing people were looking for him, he took to the trees. The woods were different than those that he was living in a month before. Prehistoric-sized ferns followed the creek upriver. Woodpeckers forged in the canopy above overgrown skunk cabbage, and squirrels jumping from limb to limb vied for a look at the newcomer. Beavers slapped the waters with their heavy, flat tails while building dams by the creek, and Douglas fir trees whispered their secrets through the vast underground fungi pathways. The bandit had just about found a place to rest in the understory when he stopped in his tracks. Voices, his mind said, warning his feet. That's what I was saying. Got the whole stage. No kidding. How much was there? What? You think I'm jumping the bandit? And why? Why not? Because, you dummy, the reward's more than what was in that box. The bandit furrowed his brow and quickly tried to open the small box, but he didn't have the key. So, ever so quietly, he started to dig where he, he was to bury it between two lichen-covered boulders. The ground was soft. He got about two feet down when the rock slide suddenly shook the earth around him. And just as suddenly, the ground opened up into what must have been an underground tunnel. The cave-in blocked both tunneling sides, though, though sorry, rocks lined the walls with shells carved by artisan craftsmen. Beads, gems, and colorful vials adorned them. But the one thing that caught his attention the most was a simple glass jar protecting a blue envelope. Glancing about over his shoulders and with listening ears, he hesitantly grabbed the jar and took the note. And just as he did, a strange form of heat vapor rose from the shadows and moved in the margin of sight. The movement was like a gust without the wind. Branches swayed and the brook splashed, all as natural as can be. But the eyes, but eyes could be felt upon the bandit's skin. He scrambled to climb out while the warmth of breath settled upon the nape of his neck. He quickly brushed around his collar where his hair was standing on end. Who's there? No answer. I know you're there. I ain't done no harm. The air cooled with a cover of clouds as the drizzle started back up, just passing through. He clambered up the newly formed embankment, using Ivy's rope, pulling with all his might. Whatever it was was closing in. He could feel it, and he ran. Are you kidding me? The bandit thought to the god above when the men looking for the reward saw him. Hey, hey, you, one of the men called out. Hey, you okay, mister? The bandit groused under his breath and kept running. That's him, the bandit, the man, the man tugged on his counterpart's sleeve. Blood sloshed underfoot, causing the bandit to scale over exposed rocks. He fell. And the men just about had him. That's when he threw the box from the stage to make his getaway. He ran until he couldn't run anymore. Another day of slower running and rain passed before he found the old shack and bunkered in for the night. The next morning, he was starving and had to find something to eat, so he left.
chapter three, fairy tales and magic spells. If you guys like what you hear tonight, uh, please be sure to hit those smiles and like buttons and all that good stuff. And that goes for uh, you guys over here on Facebook, you guys on YouTube. And be sure to leave comments, and uh, that will help me with the algorithms. So it'll, it'll push us up further with the algorithms and things like that to you know, get us out to more people because that's what we want is to distribute and have more people listen to our shows. Okay? So help me out with that. And uh, also, if you've done so already, please be sure to subscribe on YouTube and please be sure to follow on Facebook. And we continue chapter three Fairy Tales and Magic Spells. Let me grab a drink here. Gonna have a little drink. It's water. Very dry here. All right. Continuing. When we are born, we immediately start adapting to our environments. Our young brains are brilliantly lit with their electrical activity. As children, we are astounding inventors and problem solvers. The processes take place in a vivid form of an imaginary world where anything and anything can happen. Our minds play out situations in the form of virtual reality. It's kind of like when you go over a conversation, you come up with a response. I should have said. With children, that thought process plays out constantly. Where sometimes the, I should have said, shows up before the conversation is tested out in the physical world. Like the tangible world, the mind's virtual reality is not always a peaceful place, and the imagination is limitless. The little girl watched as the family she once knew began to die. As most people do when an unexpected change occurs, she looked for a trigger to the change, a time or event that could be corrected to bring back the family she once knew. As she looked back, she found the changes were already underway long before she showed up in this life. All lives are all the lives are connected. All the things that happened were setting up for now, and that means the future was already set up too. So she attached the most recent memorable shift as being the loss of the blue envelope. Maybe, if I find it. I looked it up, Kitty. The little girl said, pointing to the definition she'd written down. At my sister's school, she takes Latin. What did it say, Kitty asked. Origin, she answered. Origin? That's a person, Kitty asked. That's a person, Kitty asked again. No, persona. That's the origin of the word person. That explains it. Her older sister's tiara found its way off the shelf to sparkle as her crown. We are all hiding and pretending to be something. The bandits are pretending. My dad is pretending. My mom, my sister, and even me. Her sister opened the front door, which hurried the tiara's return as feet slid over the bare oak floor and jumped to the soft carpeting of the hallway, taking with her, or, or taking her with them. You see, she continued, we are all pretending because we don't know who or what we are. I don't get it. I just am, Kitty said. Yes, because you don't have to be anything because you already are. You already flow in the hum. Kitty sat on the yellow canopy rungs watching her climb up. I mean, you are part of everything. You are love like the Bahama. Oh, I'm sorry. What am I reading today? You are love like the Bahama we read about in the National Geographic. The little girl explained. But people pretend. In the woods, she and Kitty pushed the rickety wood door of the shack open. Thick dust littered the floor. Cobwebs scrawled across the ceiling. And a single shelf held dated books full of must and mold. Her fingers rattled slowly over the, their bindings. Goosebumps flipped flocked her arms as she pulled back the book from its place. 1926. That's how old this book is, Kitty. She read the binding. My Antonia. She pulled another book down. Here's one. Originally published in 1892. And this edition is dated 1919. The Diary of a Nobody. 
She replaced the books to the shelves after wiping down the dust marks. This is the fireplace the bandit warmed up that night. He, he stumbled upon it. He took his jacket off to let it dry out over the back of that chair. She bent, looking under the chair. No blue envelope. No blue envelope, she said, scanning the room for what seemed like the millionth time. She went to work dusting and sweeping the small space. We can light a fire here, but first we need to check the chimney. That is what my dad says we have to do before we start having fires every year. Soot fell, fell like a blizzard from shoving a broom handle over and over again up the stone flue. Looking like a scullery maid on a bad day, the little girl made her way home and snuck upstairs to the bath. Soon the porcelain tub looked more like a coal bin smudged in oily sooty smears. Whoops. It took several days worth of work tidying up to get the little shack clean and livable, to remove all reminders of the bandit. After a quick stop by the woodshed for tools, she was led by the giant ferns and banana slugs through the pines where the days, where the days awaited. She left and returned in clean clothes, thanks to Kitty's idea of storing work clothes in one of the pots at the shack. Kitty, if you think about it, we are, we are all a nobody. We're all part of the hum. People shouldn't have to pretend to be important, because we already are, just not the way we think we should be. A fire lit, torching splinters and twigs. We need a bigger fire to heat our pot. Outside, dry moss caught on her sweater as she stacked small branches under her arms for fuel. Soon the fire warmed the small room <clears throat> and a cast iron bowl hung over the flame with twisted fence wire. We are going to release the walls of Persona, Kitty. Kitty's beautifully painted hazel eyes put their trust in her. We'll release the spirits into the hum and be free. Let's be the witches of Macbeth, you and me, and the flower lady. We'll have to be the third. Water from the stream began boiling in their makeshift cauldron, and ingredients were laid out, ready for inclusion. Magic potion ingredients. Fiddle-hid fern leaves. Tiny bone found on the path. Freshly picked pine cone, juniper berries, elderberries, moss, mushrooms from the horse poop flower petals, honey. Cracked open hazelnuts. The ingredients list was found buried outside the childhood home in Portland, Oregon. AJ. They're all substitutes, but they'll work. A gathering of birds sang outside as the dusk held its breath for the, for the spell's dawning. Let's begin. Round about the cauldron go, they danced with the golden hue of firelight. And the poison on trail's throw toad that under cold stone days and nights has thirty-one sweltered venom sleeping god. Boil thou first in the charm pot. She looked over the displayed ingredients. We'll just put in these rocks instead of a frog. I don't want to boil a frog. He's too cute. The rocks splashed into the rolling bubbles, releasing steam that twisted like an unhurried tornado, slow and mythological towards the ceiling. Double, double, toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Filet of a finny snake, the fiddlehead fern, and the cauldron, boil and bake. Her eyes closed to feel the steam wrap her like a cocoon with a comforting embrace. It pulled against her back, branching like, like the tree, feathering like wings. Eye mute into a frog. In went the small bone and one juniper berry. One juniper berry. Wool of bat and tongue of dog. Flower petals and moss. Adder's fork and blind woman's sting. Mushrooms from the horse pile and elderberry. Lizard's leg and owlet's wing. Hazelnut and pinecone drenched in honey. For a charm of powerful trouble, 
like a hell broth boil and bubble. And she drank it, while the steam wings blackened like the raven, lifting her into the kaleidoscope of the hum. Dear flower lady, it's hard to describe what I see without vision, when my eyes are closed. I've been looking through the dictionary, but it's full of words used to describe our limited view of the world. Limited because it's based on what our eyes can see when they're open. I see colors they do not teach on the color wheels. I see colors outside of the vision of my eyes. Everything is always moving and always still. It is filled with beautiful spirits, and life is like magic. But not like magic tricks, but like fairies and science, space and atoms. A behind-the-eyes view of life. A world unspoken. Words are limiting. A.J. Chapter 4. The bandit meets Untel and the puppeteer. The bandit saw smoke billowing from the chimney when he got back from getting food and slunk back into the shadows of the dense forest because someone else was already at the shack. The blue envelope weighed, weighed in his breast pocket with a sort of novelty, like one of the king's secrets. He took it out again and read the front. Do not open until it is time. He stuffed it back into his pocket. Well, might as well get going and find that sinkhole again. He said to himself after he couldn't get back into the shack for another night. It was not yours from which you took. Return the envelope to the brook, a, rasp a raspy boy said, surprising the bandit. Who said that? The bandit looked around. Stop your fooling. He wanted to run but was paralyzed in place like one of those frozen in place nightmares. I ain't got... He felt eyes tickling the delicate hairs on the back of his neck. Step out so that I can seize you. The brush rustled and thicket of giant ferns. I hears you. Come out, or... A pair of large, furry green ears stood like that of a dog, listening curiously before the rest of his body emerged. This is better. Now that you see me? Go back. I changed my mind. Get back. The bandit wasn't sure that Uncle would do. Don't... Or wasn't sure what Uncle would do. Don't step any closer, or I'll... You'll return what you took to me. The elfin-like creature... Yeah. The elfin-like creature... Stepped out from the ferns. Long fingers pointed at the bandit from hands that barely peeked through the, sh the sleeves of the brown felt jacket. The bandit backed himself against a tree. Don't come any closer, please. Whatever you are. Excuse my allergies. His eyes squeezed shut. I swear, I was just going to, to, to return it. He reached into his pocket. I got it right here. Well, until asked with his hand out for delivery. No, nah, it's right here. Just give me a sec. Trembling, he searched desperately for the envelope. You lost it? Uncle so uh, saucer-like eyes doubled in size. Where is it? I swear it was right here in my pocket. Where is it now? Uncle asked. The shack. Must have fallen out in the shack. I took a rest. The bandit acted out, out his movements. Jacket over the chair, lit the fire, lay down to sleep. Must have fell out. How stumbling and crawling, the bandit ran off. I'll get it. Candlelight flickered from the shack's windows against the dark sky like a painting you'd see in a museum where the smoke billows and the full moon sits above as if holding, invisible, holding an invisible syringe to a marionette, which is, the, which is the life below. From the trees, you could almost see the puppeteer playing as the family sat and ate supper. The bandit spine had continued running without him. How was he to get inside and have the chance to look around? I'll just knock. Maybe they'll feed me too, he nodded to himself. They ain't got no reason to be, to be suspicious. 
He stood, pulling himself together, but not enough to ready him from the unexpected clammy touch of the shadow creature, with breath, with breath licking at his earlobe. The blue envelope. You took it. I want it, the breath whispered. I want it. The bandit looked, but saw nothing. I don't got it. Whatever the shadow was, its cold touch ran like a finger across the bandit's throat, threatening. You will get it and give it to me. What's in it? What's in that envelope? The invisible breath chilled his bones. Now, it said. Panicked, the bandit looked around. He just needed into the shack, and, for the untold time in the last few days, he stumbled forward. The man inside refused to invite him in for supper. Road's been spreading of a bandit, and I just can't risk my family tonight, mister. It's been a long day. Maybe in the morning you can join us for breakfast. The bandit slipped on the stairs going down, landing hard on the dirt. He couldn't go back into those woods without the envelope. That's when he saw the hatchet, leaning against the fire logs, dusting his knees off. The bandit looked through the candlelit window where the family had been acting strange, possessed even. To him, it looked like the shadow creature might have taken over. That's it. A surge of fear and fury and fury raised within him, a venom so great. It was unlike anything he had ever experienced before. The strings of the puppeteer moved him, moved him almost mechanically to the hatchet, up the stairs, into the shack. Chapter 5. Magic Mushrooms. Pop back over here real quick. Okay. Continuing. Chapter 5. Magic Mushrooms. That's what bad guys do. They hide maps and stuff in secret places, usually under floorboards or in a book on the shelf. There were still books on the shelf, musty and old, so he might have put the envelope in one of them. The problem was a family moved in before he could get it back. The little girl contemplated her words. What else would he have hidden in the trees while the family finished their dinner? She asked rhetorically as her thoughts skidded forward to answer the next question. It was a soup, a stew sort of thing. Probably rock soup. That makes the most sense. After all, they lived in the woods, and there are a lot of rocks. It would probably be better if the family didn't know they were getting hatcheted. But how would they not have known? Pacing with moss-stained white tights and black patent leather Mary Janes, the little girl fashioned the story as her eight-year-old fingers twiddled in the thought, and that's when they caught her eye. Mushrooms. They ate the wrong kind of mushrooms in the soup. Joyously, the words escaped. When the poison kicked in, they had no idea. Kitty sat on the stoop with another questioning look. They accidentally picked the wrong ones, the little girl answered. The doll kept looking at her. Because they were pretty, kind of purplish, that's why the kids picked them. And they put them in the soup as a surprise. The leap in her voice was convincing enough. Now we need to find the envelope. Maybe he buried it in the lilac grove. The little girl's mind stayed in the lilacs for a brief second before offering another idea. Let's make perfume, she said. The small porcelain face sighed, thankfully, ready for something else aside from the bad guys that seemed to always lurk in the shadows. We'll need to ask scientists to help first. From the top of her tights, she pulled out a small notepad, taken from her mother's desk and a pencil. Dear flower lady, today we stopped the family from hurting. They ate mushrooms. They didn't know... They didn't know you to ask if they could eat them or not. Kitty Flower and I want to make perfume. I think we need a scientist. I miss you. AJ. 
Throwing the letter as small as possible, she moved to the old pine tree with its root bent like a gourd. The little girl and Kitty bunkered indoors when they couldn't go out. A makeshift writing room sprawled with crayons, pencils, paper, and glass, counting jars under her yellow canopy bed. The space, however, seemed to shrink the older she got, making it harder to reach the supplies or hide when she wanted to be invisible. So the makeshift room gained satellite offices and closets behind couches under giant abravites and horse stables, but never in the basement. We can't go to the pine today, Kitty, so we're going to do the rafters. So we're going to the rafters. Kitty hitched a ride in the back of her tights. Need two halves to climb, you know. The unfinished attic ran like a hollow garret with two levels, the first being the home of her father's desk at the far end, looking out a tiny window to the often gray Portland sky, and the second up a ladder to a labyrinth of boards without proper floor. Excuse me, again. She never dared to use the lights and went along strictly by crawling, feeling, and balancing. Don't worry, Kitty. She weaved her way along as spiderwebs brushed eerie tails on her shoulders, and creaking boards whispered the future. Up the hall, I mean up the wall, she climbed. Splinters bit her hands, but finally, in the highest eve, she could mail her letters. They were all done. A chill sitting around the quaint cottage, also referred to as the shack. It painted the spider's web with ice and kissed the grasses with the frost before the late morning sun peeked out. After stoking the fire to warm her tea, the flower lady emerged with a basket around her arm, the way lovers stroll through the park. She greeted the edge of the woods where the deer were already snacking on blackberries. Good morning, the flower lady said. Shall we check the mail? Daisy the squirrel scampered over to the pine tree's secret mailbox with, har with harvest-filled cheeks. Ah, we have a letter. The flower lady's voice was like harmony, beautiful like the stony brook. After reading, she refolded the parchment to place it back in the jar. Everyone, I have news about the family. The forest paused. They're no longer hurting. They have moved on and our cottage is rid of the bad guy. The posse caught him. The gathered creatures cheered. It seems, however, the little girl needs a scientist, one that studies plants. A blue jay followed her to the windowsill where the sun tea was, was brewing. So today we're not making pies, but a loaf of bread. Every day, always every day, she had tea and pies and cookies waiting for the rare passerby. Soon the set of baking bread wiggled its way out of the wood stove. It glided through the meadow and slipped between the branches to the trail below. Chapter 6 In Fairy Tales, Time Algamates Almost 100 years ago, a new field of physics was discovered, quantum mechanics. Physicists Max Born, Werner Heisenberg, and Edwin Schrodinger, S-C-H-R-O-D-I-N-G-E-R, created objects of the quantum world. And according to quantum theory, these objects did not move along a single well-defined path. Instantaneously, they take different paths and end up at different places at the same time. Right now, this theory pertains to the tiniest particles, which can also be present in a single event in innumerable ways. But I believe larger objects, much larger objects, which are made of these tiny particles, can also branch off. This is where parallel lives, universes, and dimensions happen. I like to explain it as a curious case of deja vu. Imagine driving down a road and you approach it or pass an exit and pass an exit, and instantly, for the tiniest second, a feeling washes over you as if, it, as if an event had just taken place. Maybe a flash, a vision, or an eerie sense of feeling that took you to the exit even though you're still on the main road. 
Our mind is programmed to follow only one of the trajectories, leaving us to believe we are on a seemingly singular path. The particles, which are part of us, that took the exit actually have the same belief that they are on a, a seemingly singular path, thus creating a parallel existence with a completely different trajectory. Finding the letters buried by the little girl wasn't so much a parallel as it was a curious case where the past, present, and future of one of these past coverage, past, pre-letter, or the writing of the letter, future, post-letter, present, the finding of both sides. Dear Flower Lady, Only chancently does our spirit reside in the body while weaving a kind of French braid where time, events, and choices converge, and where bits of our spiritual matter entangle again and again before, after, and during our mortal experience. Age 9. It puckered. The air puckered and sparkled around a set of stray granite boulders. Marmots stood for a second of curiosity before scurrying home at the sight of his ungraceful entry. Brushing his knees and shoulders with a flip of his hands, he reached for a small transmitter from the pocket and a, of his brown tweed jacket. Smashed, the man said, looking at the crumpled mess of metal, not surprised at the look he was having to late. He was in the middle of what seemed to be nowhere. High in the mountains with granite cliffs caging the distance, in all but one possible exit several miles away. He'd forgotten his lunchbox on the other side of the teleportation hole, and his stomach was offering up quite a protest as he bent to grab some of the sorrel at his feet to choke down. Looking more like Jules Verne without the beard, the man began hiking the descent while using a branch as a gentleman's cane. The Mormons came back out watching the stranger stop every few feet to write observations and notes in a small leather-bound booklet. Usually his travels mirrored, in a way, the stories of H.G. Wells in terms of time travel. He was a scientist by trade and part of an expeditionary unit exploring the wrinkles in time and space. He had traveled so often that by the time he arrived at his present location, he'd already been losing any sense of where and when he came from. He'd, heard, he'd learned to live in the now, in the precise moment, and to absorb and blend patience in the undulating and unpredictable pace at which his life moved. It was through a wrecked stone wall that his unexpected gateway traversed. His last recollections before stepping through the vortex were of what looked like a hidden garden in the distant end of a, of a sudden morn. And now, without the means of proper communication, he had to make the most of where he was if he were to survive. So, he set off to find his bearings. Several days took away the distance from where he started, started to the creek below and introduced him to a new travel companion, one that looked somewhat like an Irish wolfhound. Weeks found the man and dog exploring forests and mapping the expedition as, as their own cartographers. Food was limited, and the call for proper nourishment commanded the dog's paths. Leaves crunched under his paws in the dry patches and squished between his toes in the mud until the bewitching scent of baking bread stopped his, his, his methodical tracks before he took off in a run. Dog, the man called. Where are you going? The man, being much slower, continued to pause every few feet just to look around. Look, dog. Come back. Look at those plants. A pencil scratched over the parchment and his legs continued to do a blind version of a jog. Hold on while I take some quick notes. His legs came to a halt about 200 yards after about 200 yards. Whether his stops were made in sincerity, the documentation, or just from exhaustion, he eventually could not follow. He could only follow. Okay, sorry. My bad. He eventually could only follow the dog by guessing. 
When the dog reached the edge of the forest, the breeze was gentle and the clouds tiptoed across the blue sky. Ivy framed a small collage displaying warm bread in the windowsill beside a brewing sun tea. What is it, Trekham? The flower lady asked. Dear flower lady. Oh, I'm sorry about this. What is it? Turkham, the flower lady asked. She stood at the far edge of the meadow where her raven left his perch to, to scope out the shaggy dog drooling beneath the display. Although he quickly altered his flight plan to the higher branches as the man appeared. Dear flower lady, I'm glad the scientist came by. He might want to try your blackberry jam. It is my favorite. Okay, we're going to stop there and we'll continue on Sunday with this book. Hang on, let me pop over here. Okay, we're going to stop there, and uh, I'll be continuing the story on Sunday uh, for our usual read, so I don't really have to introduce it. <laughs> it's season Friday. Uh, so we'll be back 6.30 p.m. Sunday uh, Pacific to read more of, of, of uh, Mary Meter's book. All right. Tomorrow, Nancy Mass is going to be with us, and we're going to be talking about feeling blocked, you know, you know feeling like something's blocking you from accomplishing things you know, that, that you want to do. And there's ways to get around that in Nancy Maths, psychically and mentally. We'll show you how to do that tomorrow, okay? So she'll be here at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I apologize for my guest. Uh, I guess it's the second no-show, so I'm guessing it's it's done. So we're not going to worry about that. What's happened happened, but whatever, you know. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I'm gonna, I want to remind you about the uh, 19th when we're going to start our meditation club. And uh, we'll be doing a meditation every three to four days a week. And that meditation will cover health, stress, and anything you can think of, you know, to, to, to help us progress in our lives. And that'll be probably, I'm thinking, either, depending, you know, whoever joins up, I'm going to talk to them about when they're available. So we might do a morning meditation, or we might do an evening meditation, like, at, say, 5 p.m., so that, so that people on the East Coast can participate, too. So it's not too late, okay? So that, 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 that's open to you guys. Check out the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup for details on the on the meditation club and the next day on the 20th i'm going to be teaching part two of my psychic development uh which covers a lot of stuff it, co it covers the different types of psychic abilities you know and, and uh, we do exercises for that to see where you might have strengths and where you don't we talk about protection we talk about um you know just uh, everything you can think of under the sun so that's another class to look into check out the california haunts paranormal investigation team meetup page that's under events as well Thank you, everybody. Uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. I mean, uh, we're equal opportunity here. And again, if you liked it, please be free and uh, to give me a smiley face and some thumbs up and things like that to put us in the main algorithm uh, for Facebook and YouTube. Alrighty then, I'm going to leave you guys alone, and I'm out of here, and I will see you tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. with me and Nancy Matz. Have a great evening, everybody. <laughs>